Welcome to the official SBGAN podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Nicely. Welcome back to those of you who have heard these podcasts before, and for those of you who haven't, uh, hey, it's always nice to have new people on board. For those of you who have heard these podcasts before, this is going to be a little bit different because it's announcing the presentation of three podcasts right in a row and then back to our usual programming a week apart. Today we have Dr. Elena Serner working in Leeds and from Romania who at the May 2023 Espigan annual meeting in Vienna was our secret shopper. She went out on the floor, she talked to everybody, she saw all the abstracts, all the presentations, listened to all of the lectures, and she's brought back to us the ones that she liked the best. Then, a week from now, on the 1st of June, Professor Michael Trowners is here, to tell us about his keynote address. For those of you, again, who couldn't attend, or to give you a second chance at it, because it was a remarkably dense piece of work, those who were actually in Vienna and were in the lecture. Then, a week after that, on the 8th of June, Christos, from Greece, with the idea of the aerodigestive unit and how that can improve patient care and why it's important to work in this multidisciplinary session, in this multidisciplinary manner to do the best for patients and their families. And then finally, as I mentioned, back to our usual programming on the 15th of June, the JPGN Journal Club with Dr. Andreas Jenke. After that, every two weeks, and you can calm down and settle back. But for now, it's Elena. Hey, welcome. Thank you very much. Hi, Alex. How are you? <laughs> I'm eager to find out what you chose as the best of the best. Mm, so first, to give you a little bit of flavor, we had, again, an amazing meeting, I will say. And I'm attending this annual meeting for the last seven to eight years. And I think every time it's becoming a bigger and a bigger event. Um, and I think the numbers are saying the same. This time we had around 4,000 uh, participants on site. That it's a huge number, I will say. And to put it this way, I think COVID brought something positive. <laughs> that it's the hybrid format. So we had another 300 person that couldn't be here with us, but they could attend online and enjoy our scientific program. We also had uh, participants from Ukraine, a very good number, which I found really, really amazing. And um, I think all this networking and all this contact, it's such a big and important part of the Espagan, probably at the same level as the scientific program. That was also great. For the scientific program, although the cutoff for abstract has increased this year, we had many submissions, around 1,300 abstracts. Yes, a big number. And um, all of them I found, or many of them, have been a very, very good quality. So I think uh, we had a really big success again. I know that some of you had to stay back at the ranch and take care of the cattle, uh, or excuse me, had to take care of the patients and their families. But make the time. Make the time to participate v virtually 
if you can't actually be in Milan next year? We will try, definitely. <laughs> so, first off, new bile acids. Michael Trauner. Yes, so... Hepatology. I'm now a pure gastroenterologist. I will say it this way because I'm not doing liver for many years. But that was my first love. And I attended many abstracts in hepatology this year. And I was really impressed with the fact that there are all the time new discoveries and new treatments that are improving the outcomes of the patient and also the quality of life. In the state-of-the-art lectures, there was a mention about the norursodeoxycholic acid and neurocolic acids, that it seems to be very good candidates to treat a condition like PSC. And in fact, there are some studies showing how um, the liver enzymes are decreasing by using them. So I think it is something very, very positive. And that, that sounds positive to me. These are new bioacids, or these are bioacids that are being artificially synthesized? Well, you don't have to tell us. There is, after all, the... Um, I'm sure that... Professor Trauner's lecture is going to be available in some format, whether in published form or reference form, at some other time. But Michael Trauner, another shout-out to you for a wonderful, wonderful keynote address. And what other, what other events in hepatology did you attend? Yes, so there was another very good abstract that uh, was looking at um, other therapeutic options in uh, cholestatic disease, like... Um, selective ILL bile acid uh, transporter, IBAT inhibitors, like Odevixibat that was used in Alagir syndrome, was um, an abstract from uh, America, oh. from New York. And I found it very interesting. Although the period of um, looking at this patient wasn't very long, uh, this medication really showed a significant improvement in pruritus, in uh, reduction in the bile acid concentration, and also improved sleeping, which it's, at the end of the day, improving the quality of life of these children. So, as I said, although it's a short study and focus more on the symptoms, I think if this treatment are used long term, may even we can even see, let's say, an improvement in the progression of the disease, will be, which will be really good. This is an allergial syndrome, and of course, allergial syndrome is one of the conditions in which the idea of biliary diversion of depleting through extracorporeal loss, the body's bile acid pool was um, tested through the work of Peter Whittington and his colleagues. So this is something new for allergial syndrome, this idea of depleting the body's bile acid syndrome, uh, by, excuse me, depleting the bi body's bile acid pool by increasing wastage. Were there any complications that were mentioned as that come as increased quantities of bile acids reach the colon? I couldn't see complication in this study, but another study that was from King's Professor Thompson um, also looked at uh, another IBAT inhibitor, the Maralixibat, and its effect on PFIC that were very good also, like decreasing the pruritus, the total bilirubin, the serum bile acids, and also improved the growth. He mentioned like, like small side effects or mild side effects, but as I said, were very mild and in form of diarrhea only, but nothing major. Nothing, okay, you could live with those side effects. Now, Richard Thompson has his thumb in every kind of PFIC pie, but... PFIC is also, to switch metaphors, PFIC is a very broad church. It includes an awful lot of disorders, and 
Now that we have the gene names, we actually know which kinds of PFC, PFIC we're dealing with. We can refer to them as ATP8B1 ATP disease or ABCB11 disease, BSEP disease. What kinds of PFIC did Richard and his team try this other bile acid uptake inhibitor in? So the study was mainly focused on BACEP1, but also he looked at the general PIC in general. So there were like both, uh, there was a part of the study looking at uh, BACEP, but the other was like uh, all the uh, PIC in general. Well, we have to wait for him again to publish these results and to say in which it worked better, in which it worked less, and in which it's really not recommended at all. Okay, so... Watch this space. And then, uh, was that it for hepatology? Of course, there are so many abstracts, but I really found very interesting this one. So, and I think on the interest of time, we're going to pass to gastroenterology, isn't it? Listen to you. You just don't love the liver anymore. You're a hollow, viscous woman, and you're every... Well, it's... it's, it's a, I'm, I'm going to just stifle myself and say, oh, okay, the, uh, the gut. Tell us about the gut. So, there was a huge number of abstracts submitted for gut and all very, very interesting. But I will concentrate more on the IBD ones because um, what I'm seeing in my center, and in fact, talking with people from other centers across Europe, we are seeing a huge increase in the number of IBD patients, mainly Crohn's disease. So, that's why I, I'm, I looked more at the IBD abstracts, really. So I found a very nice one from Israel where they have this big cohort of patients that I mentioned it last year on the same annual meeting podcast, the EPI-RN cohort. And this time they asked the question if starting biologics early will change the natural history of the disease. I want to stop right here and say, define early. So early will be like more at the one of the first treatments, I will say. So start biologic from the beginning. At the moment, biologics are deployed only after other treatments have failed? Not really. So what we are doing now um, on the high-risk patients, for example, fistulating disease or perianal disease or uh, impaired growth, we could use it from the beginning. So we have some guidelines for that, very good ones. But in the other cases, mild, moderate, or so on, we try, of course, with other treatments before, and only if they fail, we are going for biologic treatment. And we also now have more biologic to try. Worse disease and worse as manifest, particularly with perianal or fistulating, fistulizing disorders, get biologics right at the beginning, and for the others, it's a stepwise treatment. Maybe we don't need to do something quite so intense. So the people in Israel said, we're going to bring out the big guns for everybody at the beginning. What do they find? So, in Crohn's disease, there was a modest decrease in the number of surgeries at 10 years, even if they start earlier, and some decrease in the steroid dependency, but not statistically significant as it was seen in adults. In ulcerative colitis, there was a significant decrease in the steroid dependency, but not in the colectomy rate. So their conclusion, more or less, was that we still have to use it in the high-risk patients. So I think this study really showed that we are doing a good thing, so our practice is good, so we're not going to change it for now. And sometimes you need these results just to show you and that you are doing uh, 
things as they as you should. So continue to use these biologics right at the beginning in the patients who have the most severe disease. But in patients who have less severe disease, then we're doing the right thing already. We don't need to in, we don't need to start off with those agents not right now. And of course, this is the sort of study that's going to be repeated again and again as new agents become available in order to say, can we make progress? Have we made progress? When should we use these things? Right. Israel was very, very strongly represented among the, among the abstracts that you loved. Yes, I think uh, the fact that they have all their patients uh, in that cohort, of course, it's really helping because it's, it's difficult sometimes to, to have so many patients and to do good study because you need the number of patients for a good study. And the fact that they have this huge cohort, I think it's, uh, it's impressive, really. Uh, very impressive. But you have to tell us what they did with that cohort before we're all going to be impressed. So the other abstract that caught your eye? Yes. So the other thing that uh, I liked, it was about prediction and preventing maybe in the future. So they looked at predicting pediatric IBD years before the diagnosis it's, uh, of IBD is made. So they look at blood tests of patients that have IBD, and these blood tests were done long before, and they compared it to controls. In the ulcerative colitis, they haven't found differences, but in Crohn's disease, they found significant differences in hemoglobin and MCH uh, even two years before they were diagnosed with IBD. So they are talking about prediction models or even preventing strategies for IBD, which I think will be really amazing. That would be amazing. I do have to ask, though, I can't remember... Thank heaven I never developed inflammatory bowel disease. But I can't remember ever putting my arm out for a doctor or a nurse to draw blood when I was a child. How did they happen to have pre-development blood test results on file? Is this frequent for an IBD patient to be complaining and complaining and complaining for some long while before a final diagnosis is achieved? Sometimes yes, but sometimes also if you have a, a national cohort and all the children on that population are there, some of them for some reason will have blood tests. So even if it's not for IBD, so I think it's more in this way that they had these blood results available. That did surprise me, I must say. So a hypochromic, microcytic, anemic picture can down the road develop into inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease. But as far as ulcerative colitis is concerned, nothing has emerged quite yet. All right. One more GI, one more, excuse me, one more hollow viscous GI abstract to be dealt with. And that is something that surprised you. The use in children of a drug available for adult use, but not yet uh, permissible in kids, at least not in the UK. Tell us about the drug. Tell us about what they found. 
So yes, that was uh, surprising and I think very interesting for me because in UK, as you said, this drug tofacitinib, that it's a JAK inhibitor, it's approved only in adults and has been recently approved for a moderate to severe ulcerative colitis. Uh, but I've seen this uh, study from the Porto group and it seems that other countries like United States, Israel or Spain, uh, they already use it and they could enroll 78 kids from um, 15 centers. And they use it in children that failed all the other three biologic classes. So it was a short study, I would say, because they look at the effects at eight weeks. But even so, 19% of these ulcerative colitis uh, children responded by achieving corticoid-free clinical remission. They also describe some adverse events like infection, pancreatitis, and abnormal blood tests, but I think this was also recognized in adult setting. So as I said, for me that I have not used it, I think it's a new hope for the patient, really, because another option, to put it this way. And a new therapeutic class, yes. right? So there will be others in this class and longer follow-up times in kids, and perhaps there. Perhaps we shall learn more about how many more children will respond or how long the response lasts. With that in mind, uh, it's time to make an announcement on your behalf. <laughs> Elena is in the family way, as the American uh, idiom goes. When do you expect your next baby? Oh, mid-August, so I still have a little bit of time. <laughs> <laughs> And that may have been one of the reasons that you paid particular attention to a class of uh, abstracts, those on diet and how maternal diet can influence child health. Yes, that was strange because I've seen a big focus on that. And as I said, I'm not sure if it's because I was more, I was paying more attention or it's something that it's emerging now. But um, I listened to several talks about it. One was about how um, a maternal diet, a healthy maternal diet, like uh, using more fiber and so on, can influence the atopies and allergies in uh, kids, like even later in life. And there was another um, interesting one from, um, from Italy, from uh, Naples, that showed that um, using a Mediterranean diet, so a healthy diet in the mom, can influence the risk of developing overweight or obesity in the kids. So they look at two years, so two years of age for these children, and um, the rate of obesity and overweight was significantly lower in the moms that had um, a Mediterranean diet. And also they look at the, how to explain this genetically, and there is a genetic explica explanation which I found very interesting. And that abstract was from Naples. Yes. So was, well, there weren't that many abstracts about COVID, were there? No, I think the people are starting to uh, not to give so much importance. It's not so much in our lives. There are still a number of them, but I think, uh, uh, yes, things changed in the last two years. The one that I found interesting related COVID was uh, another study from Italy, from Naples, that uh, showed the effect of the postbiotic uh, lactobacillus rhamnosus GG in COVID-19 associated diarrhea. So we know that the diarrhea in COVID is uh, due to the oxidative stress and also 
chloride secretion as a spike protein, it acts as an enterotoxin. And they use an in vitro model to show that this lactobacillus inhibits the enterotoxic effect and oxidative stress. I think the question is now how we can use this in clinical practice and if we can use it for other viruses that could produce diarrhea. Well, you brought back from your uh, shopping tour a lovely basket of abstracts and a lovely basket of observations, and we thank you for that. Um, will you be with us in a year's time? I'm hoping so. Okay, we look forward to your next shopping tour. Thank you very much. Thank you.